This is a podcast from ABC Radio Overnights. I'm Rod Quinn. Well, this week a report was released that said that the New South Wales Coroner's Court does not have the resources to keep up with its workload and should be restructured. It's possible that the same might be said about the coroner's courts in every state and territory in Australia. So what does a coroner and the coroner's court actually do? What is their role in our legal system? Our guest this morning is Hugh Dillon, who was New South Wales Deputy State Coroner from 2008 to 2016. He was admitted as a solicitor in 1983 and was appointed as a magistrate in 1996 and is now part-time Deputy President of the Mental Health Review Tribunal reviewing forensic patients. Hugh Dillon was one of the experts who wrote the report and he's our very special guest on this morning's Talking Point. Hugh, a very good morning. Welcome to the program. Uh, Thank you very much, Rod. Firstly, why was the report Necessary. We don't want to necessarily talk all about the report. I want to talk about the role of the coroner. But why was that report necessary? Well, I, I think it's necessary because um, about 6,500 people uh, die and their deaths are reported in New South Wales every year. And that leaves a, a trail, uh, an enormous number of bereaved relatives behind. Um, it also raises questions about how many of these deaths occurred and whether they're preventable. And the system simply isn't coping. It's, a, it, uh, it's an old system that was designed in the early 1900s um, and it really hasn't changed a great deal over uh, the last 120 years. So it's time for a change. It, uh, there's been change everywhere else in Australia And New South Wales really is the last cab off the rank in reforming its coronial system. So New South Wales is not really typical of other states. How different are the other states and territories in Australia when it comes to the coronal system or the coronial system? Well, they're very different, really. Um, Every other jurisdiction in Australia, and indeed internationally where there are coroners, has specialist coroners doing all the work, all the coronial work, Whereas in New South Wales, we have uh, half a dozen specialist coroners and then uh, 40% of reported deaths uh, uh, occur in the regions and country magistrates deal with those. They're not experienced in coronial work, they're not trained for it, and indeed they're very busy doing other things. So we have a system which overloads country magistrates with coronial work, which they can't do properly, and we under-resource the people who know what they're doing. So you were trained as a lawyer in the legal profession. I would have thought that it's pretty essential to be trained in the medical profession if you're a coroner. I mean, are there people who are doctors or in the medical profession who carry out the actual uh, post-mortems? Yes, that's right. So um, when uh, a death is reported, there will almost always be a, some sort of post-mortem investigation. Um, and they're, they're conducted by forensic pathologists who are specially trained uh, pathologists. Pathologists deal with disease and uh, morbidity and mortality issues. Forensic pathologists have special training in, in looking at uh, particular 
deaths, uh, the causes of deaths, and they have training in things like uh, gunshots and, and stabbings and murders and these sorts of things, or accidental deaths caused by uh, traumatic injuries. So there are, I think, uh, well, certainly when I was a coroner, there were around about 15 of those in New South Wales. They do the preliminary medical examinations. Uh, all coroners are uh, judicial officers, they're lawyers, uh, but they work hand in glove with the the specialists work hand in glove right. with these forensic experts. And is that the same in every state and territory in Australia? Yeah, yeah. One of the other things that has been talked about with the coroner's office or those that conduct the, or those that are involved with the uh, looking after those bodies, there were criticisms, there have been criticisms about inappropriate behaviour. What did you find in your study, in your report? Yeah, um, that was certainly going on in the in the nineties in New South Wales. Um, I've I've studied it overseas and and um, we studied coronial systems overseas, including Ontario and places like that. And it it apparently has been a problem internationally. Um, we should point out South that we're talking about uh, removal of organs, uh, stealing from the bodies, things like that. I mean, pretty serious stuff. Yeah. That's right. And um, there was a uh, an investigation conducted by Brett Walker SC into those sorts of goings on in New South Wales in the 90s. And um, as a result, there were, were uh, very stern reforms instituted. Um, I'm very confident that the people who run forensic medicine and the forensic medicine facility now um, are, are perfectly clean. You know, there's a great deal of emphasis on ethics and integrity there. So I don't think families have to worry about that in New South Wales. I, I couldn't speak for other, other jurisdictions. But you would think after what happened in New South Wales, the other jurisdictions would be taking a very close eye at what happened at their places oh, as yes. well. Oh, yes, yes, very much so. And we should point um, out this happened before you were Deputy Coroner. Oh, a long time before, yeah. yeah. Um, I've forgotten how many years, but it was quite a long time, yeah. Good morning, Ian. Oh, good morning, Rod. Uh, uh, I want to firstly thank you for your broadcast. It's always wonderful and interesting. Thank you. And uh, Hugh, uh, I just wanted to ask you a question. Uh, what was the most fascinating, interesting case that you ever dealt with uh, in your career? All right, so you must have dealt with a lot of them, Hugh, and obviously with discretion about uh, people that you, you can talk about, but there must be some fascinating cases that you needed to really get to the bottom of. Yeah, there were. Um, well, I did around about 300 inquests, I suppose, over over nine years. Um, look, the, there are many of them, and um, I think the one that really sticks out in my mind was uh, one of the early ones, it was um, the disappearance of a woman. And uh, I did an inquest into her disappearance as a result of which her husband was charged with murder and he was later acquitted at, at his trial of that. Um, I still think about that a fair bit and uh, I... I believe we we got to the bottom of it. I don't want to n name this particular man, um, but I I believe we identified who 
was responsible for her disappearance. And uh, at, at some point, when I think it's appropriate, I, I might write a book about it. But it, I, I think that's that's the one. And another one that I found incredibly fascinating was um, the deaths of four people on Sydney Harbour when a, a ferry in the middle of the night ran over a pleasure boat that's uh, that was running under Sydney Harbour Bridge without lights. Mm. That was enormously traumatic for everybody involved. It was, the in family... fact, the death of a, a, a promising young athlete, wasn't it? Yes, it was, an ice skater. Um, and uh, and there were four people who died uh, in that incident. Um, but it was incredibly traumatic, not only for the family families of those people, but also for the um, for the guy who was the ferry driver, uh, for the for the young man who was driving the pleasure boat, um, you know th- these incidents leave scars on people for life. People never really recover, and there's there's no. I, I don't believe there's any such thing as closure. I think you can people can adapt and learn to live with things because people generally are pretty resilient over time anyway. Um, but that was. That was crushing for those people, but it's also very technically interesting um, if you're if if you're interested in the technicalities. And so we we spent a lot of time looking at things uh, to do with how traffic moves on Sydney Harbour and whether we could make Sydney Harbour safer for people. I want to get to that in a moment about recommendations, but. What about your own mental health or the the people working there and the people working in the coroner's court? What steps are taken to look after you? I mean, you have to go through and hear some absolutely horrendous evidence at some point. Yeah. um, Look, curiously, after my first year or so, in which I certainly became (laughs) hypervigilant, I mean, it's it's amazing You, you... read so many stories and hear so many stories that you suddenly realise life, every life, uh, could be snuffed out um, any time, even walking a dog. So uh, I did become hypervigilant and and a bit anxious, I think. But look, after a while, um, I became quite used to it. And I I I never got depressed. and I think that's because you have a constant feeling, uh, A, you're doing something good for others, and that's a very satisfying thing. I, In fact, after a little while, I, I came to feel this was a vocation, not just a job. Um, and there's a very pastoral element in trying to look after people going through terrible things. And so you you stop thinking about your own feelings and you think about theirs. Um, but the other thing is you're working with a lot of really good people and it's not just coroners you're dealing you're working with family counselors grief counselors you're working with police investigators you're working with forensic pathologists you're working with lawyers um, experts medicos all sorts of people and being part of a team which is which is trying to help these people get through these dreadful events uh, can be, very protective of your mental health. In fact, I, I feel now more exposed. Mm. Since I left the coroner's court, I feel more exposed to my experiences than I did at that stage. So I just want to go back to that case that you mentioned earlier where the mm. woman disappeared. 
you found or you seem to think that uh, the, the husband had uh, killed her. Yeah. Is there any recourse after that? After that goes to a criminal court, the jury presumably found this man not guilty. <clears throat> Were you satisfied with the way that the prosecution carried out their case and presented the evidence, evidence that you had seen as uh, in another court, in a coroner's court, and you had decided, well, we think this man um, did it and therefore there's enough evidence for the police to charge him. How did you feel when the court case ended and he was found not guilty? Do you think he, this person's got away with murder? And did you, were you happy with the way or were you really displeased with the way that the prosecution carried it out? Or why do you think that the man was found not guilty? Well, um, he was found not guilty because the the jury were persuaded they should have a reasonable doubt. I think the prosecution did it did as good a job as they could. Um, this was a difficult circumstantial case. When someone disappears, yeah. uh, it, it is and there's no body uh, and there's no direct evidence of who who did it. Um, you have to weave a whole lot of threads together um, and I, I happen to to know the barrister who represented the the accused man and I know he's a he's a, he's a good barrister um, very very able man um, I I actually spoke to the trial judge I, I ran into the trial judge afterwards uh, some months afterwards and uh, the trial judge, told me a little bit about the trial. And, in fact, I think the trial judge had a doubt about whether uh, the accused had had done it as well. So I, I didn't sit through the trial. I didn't see how the, how the case progressed. But uh, that's all I can say. I, um, you know, the, the, the barrister got him off. That's okay. what happened. Now, Peter says, um, could you ask you, what is it the coroner looks for when called? Often um, hear of a situation... Uh, we're waiting for the coroner to attend. So I suppose that's the question, isn't it? What kind of uh, deaths are the responsibility of a state coroner? Yeah, well, there's a, there's a number of them, and, but but it, it real, really boils down to this. Um, was the death sudden, unexpected, unnatural um, or unexplained? Or did the person die in custody or... Uh, in police operations, or was the person um, a vulnerable person, in, as for example, a child in care, or a person, uh, an adult person, um, for example, with a, an intellectual disability who, who died in care? So, um, suspected homicides, suicides, um, accidents, or unexplained deaths, where a, a doctor hasn't been treating a person for quite a long time and, and so there's no medical direct medical explanation of Can somebody death. refer a case to the coroner, like a private individual? Yeah, they can. Um, that occasionally happens. Um, so, for example, uh, sometimes people die in hospital <clears throat> and the uh, the treating doctor will, will report the case to the coroner's court or... Um, sometimes, uh, and this has happened a number of times to me, um, somebody dies, say an elderly person dies uh, and they've been cared for by somebody 
mm-hmm. and somebody else, a, m- a member of the family, yeah, a relative, yeah. a relative um, is suspicious of, of the quality of the care or whether you know possibly they've yep. the the person has been murdered. Um, so they they're reported sometimes. Mm. Who does the coroner represent? The coroner represents the community. Um, we're state officials. I shouldn't say we. I'm no longer a coroner, but coroners represent the community um, because, of course, all of these deaths are not just private incidents. Um, if an unexplained death occurs, in a sense, that's a public event because um, an unexplained death uh, is an event which represents a kind of um, threat to to all members of the community, possibly. There's a potential for a, a, a much wider significance of these okay. kinds of deaths. If you'd like to talk to a coroner, Hugh, or former coroner, Hugh Dillon is with us, one three hundred eight hundred triple two. You can text as well, 0467 922 Norman in Camden is next. Good morning, Norman. Uh, yeah, I'm do- to the doctor. I all the way back. It's not to a Quincy. doctor; he's a lawyer. But that's all right, Norman. Oh, okay. Go on. All, all the way back to Quincy or to Bones. Um, you're a crime fighter. Uh, did you ever think coroners would become sexy? You know, with TV <laughs> shows about you and all, all that right. sort of stuff. All right. Yes, there have been a couple of TV shows about all medical examiners, as Quincy was. Uh, occasionally, they turn up on TV. Well, how are they uh, represented on in TV and movies? Do you think? Coroners. Uh, well, I, the reality is very different from the TV show. No, but, come but, on. No, no, very unsexy. Um, the coroners are not doctors in in Australia. They're not doctors in in the United States. In fact, coroners are not are not usually doctors. Uh, medical examiners are doctors, but they're they're so Quincy, for example, was a medical examiner, not a not a, a coroner. Yes, I mean the United States. Um, I, I sometimes think New South Wales doesn't have a particularly good system. The United States has a shocking system. I mean, it's truly appalling. Um, coroners can be elected. Coroners are elected, and you can beat the local shoe salesman or the local mechanic. dog catcher. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's a it's an atrocious throwback like so much of the American constitution really uh, to the 18th century or the 17th century. So I, I wouldn't recommend uh, anybody to take American examples as what as uh, a picture of what coroners actually do in this country. So when it comes to the medical side of things, which we acknowledge you're not a doctor, uh, but you would have overseen the medical evidence uh, being presented in court. Is it easier yeah. these days because of DNA and other scientific methods of identification? Yeah, it is. Um, it, one of the best, well, for me, one of the most intellectually fascinating parts of the job is working hand in glove with forensic pathologists. And in fact, I was at Glebe, uh, the Glebe Coroner's Court, and the uh, the forensic health people were uh, were working on the other side of the building, <clears throat> and after a time, I, I I got up the courage to go downstairs and have a look at what they were doing. So I I, I started to watch uh, inquest. Uh, sorry, autopsies being done, and 
over time, you learn actually quite a lot of medicine because you're talking with these people all the time. Um, so, yeah, the, the, I mean, I, I'm certainly not qualified as a doctor, but I, I now know a fair bit of, of uh, pathology, I think. Um, so that's, that's a very important part of the job. Uh, that's why we need specialist coroners in New South Wales, not country magistrates doing it, because sometimes you do need to challenge doctors on A, what they're seeing, and B, whether they should be conducting a full three-cavity autopsy to get at the true cause of death. You know, sometimes you don't need to do that. And, and in fact, one of the good things about the New South Wales system is the Coroner's Act requires that the least invasive procedure to determine the cause of death be carried out. Quite often it seems to me that the coronial inquest, or even court case if it goes that far, happens a long time after someone has died. Why is that? Um, yeah, well, good question. I, I think the simple answer is lack of resources. The the more complex answer is the coronial system is actually a multidisciplinary complex. So you've got police, you've got medicine, you've got sometimes other experts, you know, for example, in an industrial accident, you might have expert investigators from Safe Work New South Wales. Um, there might be all sorts of complications. Um, so the coroner is really a coordinator of a, of a large project when you're carrying out these investigations. And some of these things can be quite complex. Um, it takes time uh, sometimes, um, and you need to be very careful, particularly on the cause of death side. Um, the police are doing many, many things simultaneously. Detectives are working on numbers of cases simultaneously. Coroners are working on numbers of things simultaneously. The lawyers are working on numbers of things simultaneously and so on and so on. So it's embarrassing, I think, and in fact, quite, I find it quite personally embarrassing anyway and chastening that sometimes you'll be doing an inquest into a death that took place three or four years previously. What about when it's something that happened decades earlier? Mm. Yeah, well, that happens. Um, uh, usually those cases are deaths of missing persons. Um, that's, that's a flaw in, in the reporting system usually. Um, so, for example, I, I read recently, this is not a case I did myself, but I read recently a case um, about a young man who died, I think it was in the early 90s, or it might have even been earlier. He died of a, um, a, he was punched in the head, fell over and died. And for some reason or other, there was an inadequate investigation conducted into his death. Years later, this is two or three years ago now, um, the, the death was resurrected by relatives who wrote to the coroner's court and asked for them to, to have a look at this case, um, which was at least 30 years old. And the coroners re-looked at it. Uh, and in fact, they dug out the old files. 
They even found the old police files. I think they found the detective who had long since retired and they talked about what had happened and they came to a very different conclusion. They, they came to the conclusion that, in fact, somebody should have been charged. And I, I don't know why the person, well, I, I assume that the, the case has now gone to the DPP. Um, but the person who, who, who threw the punch may not still be alive or, or may not still be in the jurisdiction. So that will be a difficult case. But, you know, these things do come up from time to time. And it's, it's, it's really bad when it does happen. I, I think it's shocking for people to wait 45 years or 30 years or four years to find out what happened to their relatives. Hugh Dillon is our guest. Um, sometimes a coroner is responsible for looking at many deaths in a tragedy such as a fire or flood or a major traffic accident. Yeah. What happens yeah. then? Um, well, uh, the, uh, I, I looked at the uh, Quakers Hill nursing home fire, which involved 14 deaths. And um, as I explained, they're a multidisciplinary investigation so in that case, for example, um, the police uh, charged a man with 11 murders and, and quite a large number of grievous bodily harm cases. So they were all looked at by the police. The uh, fire and rescue looked at how the, how the fire actually happened. We had, well, there were also independent fire experts. We had management experts looking at how this thing worked. We had people from APRA, the people who... Um, regulate the health industry because Roger Dean, the guy who started the fires, was drug dependent and had been stealing Schedule 8 drugs. These are opioids and things like that. Um, so there were investigations by the healthcare professional regulators. Um, we had lawyers, we had all sorts of things. So that's one kind of case. Um, I also did another fire case in which one person was grievously injured and another person died and that lot, lots of people involved in the building industry and the fire protection industry were involved in those. So you, what you're doing is pulling together a lot of experts to look at these cases which have um, complicated causes and then you try and work out the causes of death which in, in themselves can be complicated but also the causes of the uh, the incident which resulted in the fatalities. Uh, it's a fascinating process, to be honest, to be involved with. So um, a couple of other text messages. One of our callers or texters says that their son died as a result of suicide. How does the coronial right. process work? I was asked by police if I wanted an inquest. I said yes. Mm. Is that two mm. separate things? Police have his phone. Can I get it back? Um, yeah, okay, well... Uh, I will point out at this point, you are not here to answer specific questions about specific cases, but you can speak generally. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, first of all, in relation to the phone, um, the, I, the, the police should have that safely in store and they should return that. Uh, in fact, um, if the case is... If the case is ongoing and there may be evidence on that, which is uh, which is still to be extracted, the, the phone may be held for that. Um, 
that can be difficult, obviously, because of passwords and things like that, and it can take time, but the phone should be returned. Secondly, um, there are 6,500 cases a year. Uh, um, I've forgotten what proportion are suicides, but I think I think it's around about eight or nine percent. I've forgotten precisely. Mm-hmm. Um, there are only 110 or 112 inquests conducted a year. So sometimes, even if a family asks for an inquest, uh, the coroner will say no, and they'll try and explain what happened. And sometimes you'll get rise to write quite detailed letters, particularly to families um, whose loved ones had committed suicide, because often the explanation is reasonably clear, um, at least the immediate circumstances are reasonably clear, and you can get a, an expert psychiatrist to tell you whether or not the the um, the care and treatment that the person may have received in the hospital, for example, was okay. Um, so, but even so, an inquest may take two or three years if a coroner decides to to go ahead with it. So, you may. I'm sorry to say, I'm really sorry. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, we pass on our sympathies, of course, to the family, which must have been a very traumatic time. It's an awful thing, and then to have to go through more of it. Uh, is makes it even worse. Uh, shocking. It's very distressing. Yeah. Uh, Malcolm in Perth wants to know what proportion of a coroner's examinations result in an undetermined cause of death? Uh, not a great number. Um, I couldn't give you a specific percentage. Um, there are cases, though, where, for example, a skeleton is found in the bush or sometimes... Um, you know, somebody has died in their home and not been discovered for quite a long time. And simply because um, the body has decomposed, the the signs that you would find on a body, a fresh body, are not there to, to examine. So that happens quite often, but I'm sorry, I, I don't That's know. That's okay. That's fine. Hugh Dillon is our guest. Hugh, um, thanks so much for your time. I want to ask about the powers that a coroner has when it comes to making recommendations to government. Now, quite often after you know a tragedy, especially involving multiple fatalities, it goes to uh, uh, the coroner's court, and the coroner will make recommendations about certain things that they think should be done in order to avoid this sort of tragedy happening again. What legal enforcement is of those uh, those recommendations are they legally enforceable or do you have to wait for the government to agree to it yeah uh, they're not legally enforceable um you do have to wait for the government to respond um well first of all that they, they do have to respond that's one of the good things uh, but they have they have the choice whether they accept the recommendation or not um so, uh, frankly, I think that's a good thing. Not all coronial recommendations are um, particularly practicable. Um, and I, I think the people who are in the best position to decide that are usually the people who are involved in whatever it is that you're making recommendations about. Um, but sometimes, sometimes they're not responded to. Sometimes 
good recommendations are wasted. Do you think that coroners should have stronger powers? Look, um, I don't, but I think the response system should be very greatly improved. Uh, I think the I think coroners, because they're not particular experts in anything um, and may only see a part of the problem, you know, for example, how hospitals work or whatever it may be, I think you, I think it, it's a good idea that you can raise red flags with people, but I don't think you should be able to, to walk in and say, we're going to change this because that may have unforeseen consequences. On the other hand, I do think that our response system in New South Wales is is very poor indeed. So how would you change that? And is it better in other states or territories? It's certainly better in Victoria, which has the best coronial system in the world. In the best Victoria, in the world? What, what's so great it, about the Victorian it, system? Well, uh, one, of the be- one of the good things that they have is that uh, recipients of recommendations have to respond within three months. Their response goes up on the coroner's court website along with the recommendations and the coroner's findings. We don't have anything like that in New South Wales. Uh, so there, if I know where to find the recommendations and the responses, but I, I challenge anybody else in the community to find them. They're on a website for the Department of Justice, Communities and Justice, but try and find them. The second thing is uh, the Victorians have specialist coroners doing all coronial work. And the third big thing is they have a culture of trying to prevent future deaths and they have uh, a research unit called the Coronial Prevention Unit, which has 20 professional researchers doing full-time research into this kind of thing. So they're feeding recommendations to coroners. They're feeding their data to uh, government agencies and others who can use the data for prevention of future deaths. This is why it's such a good system. The only other system in the world that compares, in my opinion, is Ontario. Um, and, And they're trying to do similar things. Interesting. So the coroner only really deals with people who have died. Isn't that the case? Yeah, uh, Andrew and Menangle right. wants to know, does the coroner also uh, just do suspicious fires where no injuries occur? I would think the arson squad as the police department would look at that. Yeah, um, well, they do. The arson squad obviously does do that. But uh, fires are part of the coroner's remit. Um, they can be suspicious or they, um, and, or they can be major uh, things like bushfires. Um, so I know the current coroner, state coroner, is going to do an in, uh, they're called fire inquiries, not inquests, mm-hmm. into the 2000, some of the 2019 sure. fires. Um, I did a big in, uh, inquiry into a massive fire in the Warrumbungle National Park a few years ago. So, yeah, that's part of it. Okay. But do people have to die for the coroner to be involved? No. Okay. All right. Interesting. Um, uh, Now, one of our texters, Paper Chucker, says, do you encourage autopsies, particularly if the death is from an untreatable disease? I mean, are we having, are we, do we have enough autopsies or postmortems in Australia? Um, Some people would argue not. Uh, Look, the New South Wales 
system, and the, it took a while to persuade the forensic pathologist to come round to this, demands that the least invasive procedure, um, which will give you a cause of death, be used. Um, that's appropriate in the circumstances. And uh, so in many cases, um, a full autopsy is not conducted. So if a, if a cause of death is clear, you know, say, for example, someone falls off a cliff um, and there are no suspicious circumstances, there may, may be accident or it may be suicide, then usually a full autopsy is not conducted. Um, but an external examination of the body will be conducted. Um, the, the body will be examined for drugs and that sort of thing. Um, but And families can object to a full autopsy. They can request it as well. Dan from Yenda says, where is the line drawn from somewhere passing away uh, to have an autopsy? Um, can anyone request one? And can a coroner say, look, it's fairly obvious what the cause of death was? We don't need one? Yeah, anyone can request one if the death has been reported to the coroners. Um, you can't just ring up and say, I'd like right. uh, a forensic pathologist to come and have a look at this. Um, although if there are suspicious circumstances, and as, as we were talking about yeah. earlier, earlier on, sometimes people do report, report okay. their suspicions, yeah. So one of the other problems, major problems all over Australia in the last, uh, you know, well, 200 years, uh, have been um, Aboriginal deaths in custody. And there have been many recommendations from coroners over the years, and yet they continue to happen. How can we do something about that, something positive? Well, the, the main thing we can do is stop locking Aboriginal people up in such large numbers. Um, and uh, there was a, and before the current uh, parliamentary inquiry into coroners was conducted, there was a parliamentary inquiry conducted in New South Wales into that very problem. Um, but it's, look, it's a, it's a much more complex thing than some people would say it is. Uh, but I think there are massive efforts being made, for example, to keep young people out of trouble or to divert them from jail in places like Burke, etc., etc. The efforts are being made. Um, I'm sure First Nations families, Aboriginal families would say insufficient efforts are being made. Um, but I think this is one of those problems. Um, how do you How do you stop domestic violence? How do you stop people drinking too much, et cetera, et cetera, and using drugs um, and and so on. You know, these are multifactorial issues. What about uh, when it comes to businesses or private companies, perhaps mm -hmm. where uh, something has happened, a death has occurred uh, on a building site or in some other situations, maybe as we've seen tragically at... Uh, at amusement parks, things like that, and the coroner makes a recommendation, do you have any power over them to enforce what you have ruled? No, you don't. And uh, and this is another gap in the system. There's not even a power to demand that they respond to recommendations. Um, in New, there's no statutory power to demand that the government does either, but the New South Wales government has an administrative requirement. But uh, non-government people can just ignore recommendations if they wish to, 
And certainly there's no place, if they do respond, that you can go to and find out what the response was. That's an enormous problem, I reckon, uh, and I, we need to change it. We urgently need to change it. Is that the case in every state and territory in Australia? I think it is, yeah. I've looked at all the all the coroner's acts around Australia and New Zealand, and I, I don't think anybody has that power to demand a response from non-government uh, recipients, yeah. So is that the case, that it's a really important thing that needs to happen? Do you think that maybe it's an you know an overreach of power for judges or coroners uh, to have the right to enforce their rulings over private companies or indeed on government without legislation um i think it is overreach for coroners to be able to enforce recommendations which may or may not be practicable um i you know i, I having seen some terrible recommendations made by incompetent coroners, largely, um, well, I won't name names. Please don't. Uh, <laughs> no, no. Um, but I have seen some bad recommendations made. Um, I don't think they should be enforceable at all, uh, but I do think it is necessary and important for the community to have confidence in the system that responses be required and that there be a statutory requirement for responses, yes. Andrew and Menangle, it's my understanding is that almost no one outside the coroner does post-mortems or autopsies. We call them post-mortems, I think. Hospitals have almost stopped doing them with the improved anti-mortem diagnostic techniques. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and uh, I, I think that's right. Technology has has helped reduce the number of autopsies, hospital autopsies, whether or not that's entirely a good thing, I think uh, some uh, medicos would, would argue. Um, yeah, I, but it's certainly a very small number of, of hospital autopsies being conducted these days. Hugh Dillon is, is our guest. He was Deputy uh, Coroner of New South Wales 2006 to 2012, I think it was. Um, uh, it's 2016. 2008. Yeah. 2016. Thank you. You mentioned uh, before a couple of the uh, the cases that uh, stood out or were memorable for you. Are there any others that you might uh, be able to tell us about to give a bit of a, an insight into the coronial process? Yeah, well, interestingly, on, on Wednesday I was down in Melbourne at, talking at a conference about some um, one particular fire, uh, one particular case that seems to have attracted a lot of interest was a. Uh, uh, a fire which resulted in the death of one young woman and the serious injuries to another in a tower building in Bankstown. Um, I think it took place in September 2012. Um, a fire broke out on the balcony of a, of a flat in the fifth storey of this tower building and the fire got away the young man who'd accidentally started the fire ran out of the flat. It was a very windy day. And the within minutes, literally a couple of minutes, the place was an inferno. Uh, the heat got up to something like a 1,000 degrees centigrade, according to the fire experts, and two young women were trapped in their room. Um, the building had been built slightly below 25 metres and it had been built at 
uh, eight meters to avoid having to install sprinklers. Had sprinklers been installed, those lives would almost certainly have been saved because sprinklers would have brought the, the temperature down to about 90 degrees. And that, while they were in their room, um, surrounded by gyprock and so forth, fireproof gyprock, they would have been able to survive until the fireys got there. But they they were forced to stand on the balcony, on the windowsill, I should say. The aluminium window frame was melting, so it was at least 600 degrees as they stood there, and they had to jump. One of the young women said, if I don't jump, I'm going to die here. Well, she did jump, and she smashed her legs. Oh, She's now wheelchair-bound, and the other young woman a very promising pharmacy student, died. And that, that death shattered her parents, as you can imagine. But there was one positive thing that came out of it, and that is that the building code of Australia was changed. And in fact, that particular inquest had a massive impact on the building codes, not here. But, but the case uh, apparently is discussed and has become quite influential as far as New Zealand and other and around around the country, so that's a case that um, I think we had a very positive impact. I say we, not using yeah. the royal we, but because of this multidisciplinary team that did this, um, that's a big case for me. And thank you very much for doing that. Um, Jovar says, uh, can you study to become a coroner specifically, or do you need? several degrees or, you know, what are the steps to becoming a coroner? I mean, you were a lawyer, you were a magistrate. What led you into be, uh, to becoming a coroner? Uh, well, it was an accident. I was uh, uh, a friend of mine, a fellow magistrate, had been appointed state coroner and she asked me, and I was thinking about leaving the magistracy, um, going to the bar, and she said, would you like to come and work as a coroner? And I thought, well, that might be interesting, also depressing. I'll see what it's like for six months, and I stayed for nine years. So, look, you have, unfortunately, in New South Wales, you have to be a magistrate first. Right. Um, I think the pool should be wider and deeper, but that's what it is. Okay, so having more magistrates would mean, uh, sorry, having more coroners would mean that you would be able to conduct more coronial inquests or uh, get through the, the, the number quicker and that's going to help deal with the problem that, as you see it in this report, that there, there is um, totally underfunded and uh, uh, under-resourced. That's right. We, Victoria has 14 specialist coroners. New Zealand has 20. Uh, New South Wales has six. Mm. I, think that's, I think that's a disservice to the people of New South Wales. And finally, Gloria in Adelaide says, what prompts you to conduct more than one inquest in some situations? New new evidence, usually. Um, so no yeah, inquest is ever really closed. You can reopen it at any time? That's right. It's not like a criminal trial where it's finished once it's finished. Um, if new evidence appears, certainly you can hold a second and sometimes even a third inquest, yes. And have you done that? Have you found that you're able to get to the bottom of a particular case with a second or third inquest? Yeah, I've uh, two or three cases Um reopened a case um, and on the basis of new evidence and, and sometimes you make completely different findings from your original findings.
It must have been a fascinating career, and of course it still goes on. I mean, your work that you've done with this current inquiry uh, will hopefully reform or at least help the uh, New South Wales Coroner's Court uh, to improve in the years ahead. Yes, well, I've been, since I left the Coroner's Court at the end of 2016, basically I've been working towards reforming the New South Wales system. And I've uh, I mean, sometimes that's felt a little bit lonely, but fortunately, uh, there are a lot of other people involved in this uh, in this campaign, and the New South Wales Parliament has now picked it up, and um, I'm hoping the government will will now put some effort into it as well. Well, thank you so much for your work, and thanks for being with us this morning. I've really appreciated it. Right, it's a very great pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you to help demystify, as it were the coronial process. Uh, Hugh Dillon, who was Deputy State Coroner in New South Wales from 2008 to 2016 and has just uh, been one of the uh, writers of the report into the New South Wales Coroner's Office. And as you heard Hugh say, the Victorian State Coroner's Office is the best in the world, which is uh, fantastic and something the rest of the country ought to be uh, copying. Overnights with Rod Quinn on ABC Radio.